So you turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, to which I ask you to turn your attention with me this morning. I will remind you that Paul is dealing largely in these chapters with the question of Israel, the question of the Jews. He began in chapter 9 with the cry of his heart for his brethren according to the flesh, his fellow Hebrews. They they had in Paul's day, as they have in our own, rejected Jesus. They received, they refused rather, to receive eternal life through him. And this was absolutely heartbreaking to Paul. But more than that, and more importantly, the wide degree of unbelief among the Hebrews raises a serious question about the faithfulness of God. Is he true to his promises? These were his chosen people, or has his covenant failed? Paul has responded in these three chapters with one argument after another to demonstrate that, in fact, God remains true to his promises and utterly dependable. For one, everyone who has been truly elected for salvation is or will be saved. God's sovereign, eternal purposes in election have not failed, cannot fail, will not fail. Paul's next argument, as we have seen, is that Israel's unbelief is Israel's fault, not God's. They are responsible for believing, or in their case, not believing. Then, upon coming to the beginning of the chapter in which we find ourselves this morning, we heard God's point, Paul's point, that God has always been true to Israel, even when Israel was reduced to a little, tiny remnant of people, even a mere 7,000 men who had not bowed the knee to Baal in Elijah's day. This morning... Paul adds one more reason for confidence that God has not failed and that he is entirely true to his promises and entirely trustworthy. Listen closely for that last reason as we read the text this morning after first we've addressed ourselves to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we pray for the wisdom and understanding that is needed especially when we come to the mysteries of God, those things that must be revealed to us or remain hidden from us. Father, open our eyes to receive these mysteries, now we pray. And understanding these things, to have them too folded into this life to which you have called us by your grace, by your spirit, who lives in us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 11, we begin at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. Let me pause already here to say that there is a real danger that Paul is addressing here, brothers and sisters. Paul is speaking to us, to Gentiles, who have been grafted into God's olive tree. And we might be tempted to therefore become proud. So, my fellow 
brothers and sisters in the Lord, my fellow Gentiles, let us be very careful not to become wise in our conceits as Gentile Christians. Let you be, lest you be wise in your own conceits, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Now nobody, nobody likes to have his paradigm challenged. That is to say, when once a person has become accustomed to thinking a certain way about something, it is very uncomfortable to have that thinking challenged or called into question. Some of you have gone through huge paradigm changes, changes in the way that you think and understand things and can testify to the difficulty of those times in your lives. Well, this week has been just such a time for your pastor. Let me explain. I grew up in the Dutch Reformed Church, and as a child of that tradition, I received with my mother's milk a certain view of future events in the kingdom of God. I grew up as what you might call an a millennialist. An a millennialist. I didn't know I was an a millennialist and, uh, until later, uh, certainly not in my youth. I don't think I realized I was an a millennialist until probably high school or college. And some of you are wondering to yourselves right now what in the world is an a millennialist? And more importantly, is it contagious? Well, let me explain. But before I get to that, let me first inform you or remind you that there is an entire division of theological study that is called eschatology. It's the study of future things. Simply put, eschatology is the study of those things that have yet to happen, those things that have yet to unfold in the future. And within the Christian church, there are a few main schools of thought when it comes to biblical eschatology. We ask, what does the Bible have to say about things that are yet to come? And the answers that Christians give to that vary greatly. Generally speaking, they will fall under one of three forms. The amillennial view, the 
pre-millennial view and the post-millennial view. And while there are variations between all of those, and one can easily become confused when trying to pin them down and distinguish one from the other, basically we say for our purposes this morning that both premillennialists and postmillennialists understand the scripture to teach a great golden age yet to come in the future, a millennium, to use the word from Revelation 20, for God's kingdom on the earth sometime in the future. Premillennialists, or we might call them pre-mills, look for that golden age after a return of Jesus to the earth. Jesus comes, and then the golden age of Christianity on the earth commences, and uh, hence the name pre-mill, because Christ returns pre or before this golden age, this millennium. Post-mills look for a golden age, a triumphal spread of Christianity around the world, and then the coming of Jesus following it, hence the name post-millennial, or after the millennium. Jesus will arrive in the post-millennial view to an earth that has already, in the main, submitted to Christ, a largely Christian globe, so to speak. Those are pre-mills and post-mills. Now, amillennialists, or amills, on the other hand, believe either that we are living in the millennium right now and need not look for a golden age, some great outbreak of God's kingdom on the earth, either before or after Christ's coming, or that those passages of Scripture that describe the golden age of Christianity fall sometime after the resurrection of the dead and the judgment. Now that is the school, the Amil school, in which I was raised. And by the way, my millennial views found confirmation in seminary, not because Covenant Seminary is an millennial school, per se, but because the professors who were there at that time, one of whom, by the way, was also a Dutch Reformed missionary and pastor who championed the amillennial view very well. By the way, uh, in other days, one might have characterized Covenant Seminary as a pre-millennial school because that was at the time the predominant view of the professors at the seminary, pre-millennialism in the early years of the seminary's existence. Anyway, of the passages of Scripture that have most divided ah-mills from pre-mills and post-mills, the one we have come to this morning must be one of the most important and therefore also one of the most hotly disputed. Pre-mill and post-mill Christians, on the one hand, come to Romans 11, to the verses we read this morning, And they have no problem reading this passage in its simplest, most natural and straightforward way. 
with their conviction, based also on other passages as well, that there will be a future golden age of Christianity on the earth, either before or after Christ's coming, they have no problem, the post-mills and, and pre-mills, believing that what Paul describes here is a future mass conversion of the Jews. That clause there, all Israel will be saved, in verse 26, makes perfect sense to them and fits wonderfully with their eschatology, with their view of future events. On the other hand, someone who comes to Romans 11 from an amillennial perspective, such as I have held for many years, must somehow get around the idea that what Paul is describing here is a great future event, a great revival of the Jewish people and a mass return of the Jews to God through faith in Christ. And so what amillennialists generally do is to interpret Paul to mean here by all Israel, all the elect, the true Israel of God which consists both of Jews and Gentiles, and that they are being saved in the whole course of the millennium, which stretches, if it exists at all, for Amils from the time of Christ's ascension to his, ascension, uh, to his, res- to his return rather in the future. Now, as I say, that has been my view for many, many years now. And there are some very good arguments that can be made for the amillennial view. The view that what Paul describes here, in fact, is simply the conversion of the Jews over the course of redemptive history, particularly from Christ's ascension into heaven and to his return, to his salvation for all of Israel, including both Jews and Gentiles both of those Jews and Gentiles being included under that term Israel. Paul, for instance, champions the idea that the true Israelite is the one who is a Jew not racially, but by faith in Christ. We are the circumcision. Remember Paul writing that to a largely Gentile church in Philippi. Your forefathers came out of Egypt. And he says that, remember, to a largely Gentile church in Corinth. He speaks of Israel after the flesh, suggesting that there is indeed another Israel, an Israel not defined by race, but by faith. And later in the primarily Gentile churches of Galatia, he not only says that a man or woman with true faith is a descendant of Abraham, but he prays for the peace of Israel, a reference not just to racial Jews, but to the Christian church. And we could certainly add examples of how God's promises to Israel, to the Jews in the Old Testament, are fulfilled not only to ethnic Jews, but to Gentiles as well in the New Testament under the general umbrella term Israel. Those are powerful arguments for an amillennial treatment of Romans chapter 11. 
that says that what Paul means here by all Israel will be saved is that all of the elect, both Jews and Gentiles, will be saved. I myself have heartily defended that interpretation for years. As a traditional amillennialist, I have never believed that there would be any literal revival among the Jews turning them to Christ for salvation. It was never even on my radar screen that such a thing would happen. Which is precisely why, as I've already implied, this has been a hard, hard week for me. Debbie can attest to the sighs and the groans that have emanated from my study this week with this passage. Having to preach these verses to you has forced me to study this passage carefully. While I think it is certainly possible that the amillennial view of this text is right, I have had finally to surrender to what this text seems plainly enough and clearly enough to say. I'm acknowledging, in other words, if you're keeping score, that the pre-mills and the post-mills are right on this point. There will be some sort of great revival, a great return of the Jews to the Lord. And please don't get me wrong, that is not a sad thing or undesirable for me personally. How can a Christian but rejoice over the salvation of someone else? I'm not being a Jonah here under the vine outside of Nineveh Nineveh, complaining about someone else's repentance. I have, of course, no complaints about a future return of the Jews to Christ. In fact, quite the opposite. My difficulty has been a strictly internal one that literally for years I have believed one thing and now I'm forced to acknowledge by the text that I may have been quite wrong for a long time on this point. In fact, for all my life. I do admit to taking some comfort from the example of another who has been in my very spot. In this situation, another fellow, in fact, by the name of John. You have often heard me quote to you from the great theologian and exegete John Murray of early 20th century renown, a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. Dr. Murray, a more than capable professor and exegete, of scripture, influential, for years in his Westminster classroom lectures taught the amillennial view of this passage. However, when Murray came to write his commentary on Romans, his views underwent a revolution and he abandoned his former exegesis of Romans chapter 11, calling it in his commentary, unnatural, indefensible, and a view that does exegetical violence to the text. Well, 
I guess if John Murray, if Dr. Murray can change his mind on this point, then I can too. And I will give you three reasons why this text seems clearly to teach that there will be a literal great turning of the Jews to Jesus Christ in the future, which we may, and of course we have to read these things backwards later on looking back, but we may be seeing the beginnings of this, the early stages, through ministries like Jews for Jesus, which are reporting great numbers of Jews today receiving eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. First, there is this, the word that Paul uses in verse 25. This mystery, Paul calls it. Now, when we use that word mystery today, uh, we mean something that needs to be figured out, something that is puzzling to us. But in Paul's day, the word mystery meant something else. Mystery in Paul's day and in the text here means something that is hidden and must be revealed. Specifically, something that is hidden from us and must be revealed by God. But there is nothing mysterious about my former amillennialist view of this passage that all Israel simply means all the elect or all of the elect Jews even. There's no special revelation needed uh, to tell us that all of the elect will be saved. We already know that. That's the very essence of being elect. A second reason to believe that Paul is writing of a literal mass of turning of Jews to Christ is that Everywhere else in this chapter, the term Israel is clearly a reference to ethnic Jews, to racial Jews. Paul's grief is for a racial group over and again, not only in Romans 11, but in Romans 9 and Romans 10. Before it, Paul is speaking of literal Jews. Now, coming to the end of chapter 11, to switch the meaning of Israel when it's been used time and again and again and again to speak of racial, ethnic Jews, now to come to the end of this chapter and change the meaning of Israel to something else. This is precarious exegesis, reading of the Bible, indeed. We would never do this in another passage of Scripture on a different topic. Not that words cannot have different meanings and different shades of meaning. Of course, even used back-to-back, they can, but it simply seems unreasonable here in verse 25 to read Israel differently, rather in verse 26, than we have read it in verse 25 and in all the verses before it. A third reason to believe that Paul is writing here of the repentance of a literal, uh, in the literal sense, Jews and literally Israel, is that it simply fits the flow of his argument here best. 
Remember now, Paul is here arguing that even though the church is almost exclusively Gentile, that does not mean, and that's Paul's point now, it does not mean that God has rejected his people Israel or betrayed his covenant with them, his promise that is to be his God, their God, forever. There are two main branches to his argument here in chapter 11. The first, you might remember from our reading last week, is that God has always kept a remnant for himself. Even if that remnant has at times dwindled down to as thin a thread as 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal in Elijah's day. In Paul's day, it was the same. Only a small remnant in Israel believed in the Lord. But it was precisely the presence of that remnant that proved that God had not failed in his promise to Israel. That's the first argument. God has always kept a people for himself, even if their number has been a relative few at times. Now here's the second argument, or the second branch of this argument, we might say. God is not finished with Israel either. God still has a plan to win this ancient people to himself at a later time. It is true they've been taken out. They've been broken off as branches from the olive tree. But there is still great hope. In fact, there is a full expectation that there is going to be a day when they are brought back in again, grafted back into that tree through faith in Jesus Christ. By the way, this view and this expectation has long been held by many whom we consider to be authorities in the Reformed faith. Samuel Rutherford wrote in one of his immortal letters, Oh, to see the sight Next to Christ's coming, the most joyful, our elder brethren, the Jews, and Christ fall upon one another's necks and kiss each other. They have been so long asunder, they will be kind to one another when they meet. Oh, longed for and lovely day, oh, sweet Jesus, let me see that sight that will be as life from the dead. Thee and thy ancient people in mutual embraces. Rutherford's even willing to say in another place this I could stay out of heaven for many years to see that victorious, triumphing Lord act that prophesied part of his soul conquering love in taking into his kingdom the greater sister that Kirk, that church of the Jews. I mentioned to you in a sermon not long ago the 19th century trip taken by Robert Murray McShane and 
and uh, Andrew Bonar to the Holy Land. That trip, too, was fueled by the conviction that God still has great plans in store for the Jews and for their salvation. And then there is the fact, as I was surprised this week to find, that there certainly seems to be this view written into our own Westminster Larger Catechism, which asks this question, what do we pray for in the second petition of the Lord's Prayer? And answers with this, we pray that the kingdom of sin and Satan may be destroyed, the gospel propagated throughout the world, The Jews called. The fullness of the Gentiles brought in. And so on. Even the Westminster divines saw the conversion of the Jews as one of those events still to come before the consummation. Strong language. Very strong language for a denomination such as ours that has been unwilling and I think rightly so, to commit to one particular eschatological view or another. There are and will remain in our denomination post-mills and pre-mills and ah-mills. So in sum, I say this, my own thinking has undergone a revolution this week, a marvelous revolution, so that now I take Paul here to mean that there will be sometime in the future a literal, wonderful, marvelous turning of the Jews to Jesus. Now, exactly when this will happen and precisely how it will fit in the future events, I am not willing to commit to say. But the fact that it is coming has some very definite implications for us as Christians today and direct. The first one, Paul himself draws there in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own conceits. I want you to understand this mystery. Brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow Gentiles, The worst thing that could happen to you or to me would be that we should become proud of our salvation, proud and arrogant, conceited. The fact that Israel was taken out of the tree, that she has suffered so terribly the punishments of God for her rejection of Christ, so that we Gentiles should be grafted into the tree in their place, should be for us no matter of pride, but rather of deep and grateful humility. In fact, praise to God from a position of humility ought always, always to be our stance as Christians, as Gentile Christians. Second, we should rejoice over the fact that God's covenant will not be broken. His work is not done. 
He is going to finish the work that he began. And truly, all Israel will be saved. Third, we should be glad to watch and to wait, like Rutherford did, for our elder brethren, the Jews, and Christ falling on one another's necks and kissing each other. This, too, should be an important part of our eschatology, of our view of future things. It is one more thing, just one more, to make our always forward-looking faith the sharper and the brighter and the more anxious to see the unfolding of God's great sovereign plan, even to the consummation of our redemption. And then fourth and finally, we should take our cue from these, like that I've mentioned, like McShane and Bonar and Duncan, who could see these things, not with the naked eye, of course, but who could see them with the eyes of their souls, which is faith. And we're not satisfied until in this way too, faith also lived and took on hands and feet. In other words, let us see to it personally inasmuch as it lies in us, brothers and sisters, see to it that our elder spiritual siblings, the Jews, be brought back home. Be brought back into the fold. Be grafted back into the olive tree by making every effort to see with our time with our money and with our energy to see that the gospel once forgotten and trampled upon by the Jews will be remembered to them again. That we Gentiles have the high, high privilege of being the conduit, being the means, being the messengers of the gospel to the Jews. Amen.